Good morning. This morning I'll be be reading from Joshua chapter 9, and I'll be reading all of Joshua chapter 9. And if you're using the blue Bible there in front of you on your seat, you can find Joshua chapter 9 on page 184. Joshua chapter 9 is titled The Gibeonite Deception. Verse 1, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, They, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a very distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Kephira, Beharoth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us saying we are from far from you when you dwell among us? 
Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Before I pray for us, just a little bit about where we're going from here. Uh, we will finish the Joshua series next Sunday. And then, surprise, the first Sunday after Thanksgiving, we start Advent. And so that's coming a little bit sooner, maybe, than it, than it feels. But just uh, where we will be headed here in the next few weeks. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth to us how it is a sign of your care and mercy towards us. Would you be with us at this time? Would you change our hearts? Would you open our eyes and ears that we may see and hear things? Otherwise, we could not. We ask this all for your glory. Amen. Well, where does certainty come from you? And that's maybe a question you've heard me ask from the pulpit before, but I think it's a question that continues to come up. Within scripture, where does certainty come from? Where are you looking for that this morning? Um, uh, this past year, my oldest turned 10 and uh, her grandmother, Ada's mom, we call her Gigi, uh, promised to give um, our children when they turned 10. This is kind of what was a surprise to me, actually. But uh, when they turned 10, to take them on a trip. And as uh, some other things kind of fell into place for this year, the destination was New York City. And so uh, May and Gigi got to go to the Big Apple and got to do all the things. Um, they got to go see the Statue of Liberty. They got to see Ellis Island. They got to go tour the 9-11 Museum. They hit Broadway. They had lots of good food. And we heard all about it when May came back. She had a blast. Um, What's been just as interesting, though, is seeing the other sisters react to this and, and seeing the other sisters react to this promise that Gigi made to May when she turns 10. And it's not what you think. Like, I would expect there to be just wailing and gnashing of teeth, right? It's unfair. She gets to go. What about me? I didn't get to go on the subway. Right? I didn't get to go on a Broadway show and on and on and on again. But what was actually the case is there was no jealousy. There, 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 there was no fighting over this. There was not even any complaining about this. And I think one of the reasons why is because they are so certain of the promise keeper. There's a promise being made to them. They're, they're so certain this is going to happen. There's no need to complain about this. There's no need to fight about this. Actually, Ann Harden, who is next in line, has made a list of the possible places that she wants Gigi to take her. I know that Disney World is on there, maybe Paris. It gets updated weekly. Stay tuned. 
But as I said, why, why, why was there no jealousy? Why was there no fighting? Why was there no complaining? I think it's because the girls trust their Gigi. Clearly more than they trust their parents. <laughs> but they trust their Gigi so much as they should that there's no question whether she will give them their trip at 10. They know this for certain. And when you know something is for certain, it changes you. When you know it's true and it's not in question anymore, there's no need for all the bickering and the fighting and the anxiety that comes along with that. You already have everything you need in that promise. Where certainty comes from for my girls in this moment is not in themselves. That's the point of the story. Certainty is coming from someone else. Gigi in this case. And the same is true for Israel and it is true for us as well. There is no certainty outside of what God provides us in his promises, outside of what he provides us. And that doesn't necessarily, though, stop us from looking in other places, does it? God has promised over and over in the book of Joshua where those certainty, where, where certainty will come from. It'll come from looking to him. It'll come from trusting in him. But it doesn't stop Israel from looking in other places. And we'll see that in chapter 9. The same is true for us. It doesn't stop us either from looking for certainty in other places. And one of the places that we love to look the most for certainty is in ourselves. We look to ourselves for for the wisdom to get us into certain places, to give us guidance and direction. We look to ourselves for the ability to perform, to give us the things that we want, to please others. But the reality is that certainly only comes from a place outside of us. Tim Keller writes this. One of the main reasons we trust God too little is because we trust our own wisdom too much. Where does certainty come from for you this morning? Where are you looking for that? What the Bible is constantly saying is the only place certainty is to be found is in Jesus. This morning, what we see is that because God promises to show mercy to those who fear him, to those who will humble themselves before them, before him, we can know for certain that he will do the same for us as well. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, because certainty is found not in here, but somewhere else in someone else. In the person and the work of Jesus Christ. For our outline, I want us to see what the Gibeonites did. I want us to see what God does. And then I want us to see what God wants. What does he want? What the Gibeonites did, what God does, and what God wants. I, I love telling or teaching narratives in a narrative style. Let's let the story do the work. And so with that in mind, let's take that first one, what the Gibeonites did. To enter into the story a little bit, let's, let's act as if we're Joshua here for a second. You come off uh, sort of you know, two hot winds from Jericho and Ai. Uh, you're kind of the talk of the town at this point from what we can gather. Nations are gathering uh, and, and stirring and, and, and taking notice, we'll say. We had a little mess up with this guy named Achan that we read about in chapter uh, 8, but God worked that out. And to demonstrate our commitment to the Lord, we renewed our covenant with him. This is the end of chapter 8. 
which means that you read actually to the entire people of God, all of the law of God. So all of the, the requirements of the covenant have been reheard, retold, reheard. We have recommitted ourselves to the Lord, if you will. To continue in obedience to him. The next morning, though, you get the news that things are heating up. Nations in Canaan are what? Coming together to fight against you. And as you're reading the morning news and all that is going on, you're told that there are these sojourners that have showed up asking for you, asking to talk to you. And they are from what they describe as a distant land. So you go out and to meet them, and sure enough, these people are rough. Their clothes are worn and tattered, right? They, they hardly have any provisions. They are sunburned from travel. What's certain is they don't pose any threat. There are no weapons to be seen. Uh, but your guard is a little up. I mean, after all, everything that is going on, the context in which you are in, uh, right, you're a little suspicious about what is happening. And so you ask, who are you? What is your business here? In which they say, we are from a distant land, right? A distant country, which is code for, we are not from Canaan. That's what that means. And we desire to make peace, they say. So, but you say again, perhaps you live here. And if you live here, we cannot make a covenant with you. To which they reply, no less than three times, we are your servants. We're your servants. We're not people coming to get you. Right? And in their persistence, though, you, you get a little angry. You're unsure what this is. You're not sure what to make of it. And so you ask again, who are you? Why are you here? And these people say again, we, we are your servants. We, we come from a distant place because we heard about your God and what he did in all of Egypt. What a mighty God you serve. We come to make a covenant with you. Lest we die as the, as in, as the inhabitants will surely die in this land. See, look at this bread, right? It was warm from our ovens when we left our houses to come to you. Look at the wine sacks, right? They are now old and torn. Look at our clothes. They are worn out. Please make a covenant with us. Promise to not harm us. We are from a distant country. What do you do if you're Joshua? <clears throat> It's a dilemma, I think at the least, we'd say. Now, verse 4, as the reader, right, tells us that the Gibeonites acted with cunning. So we know this is totally a front. We know what they're doing. They disguise themselves as people from a distant country in order to make peace with Joshua and Israel. They use flattery towards them and their God, how they would have come because of the, how they did come because of the name of the Lord, your God, the text says. Because of the reports that they had heard. Interesting enough, they don't mention Jericho and AI, right? They talk about the other things God did in Egypt as if they don't know. They live right next to them. Smart. Right? They 100% set out to deceive Joshua and Israel. There's no question about this. We know this, but Joshua doesn't. And guess what? It worked. It worked. Joshua and the leaders buy it and they make a covenant with them. This is what the Gibeonites did. A couple of things that might not be obvious to us just from reading this. One, there is a provision in Deuteronomy 20, which is part of the law that would have been read that we hear uh, of them reading at the end of uh, chapter 8. To offer peace to nations that are what? Very far from you. That are of a distant country. That are not of the nations here in this land. Now, do the Gibeonites know this, right? And thus, this is why they enacted a plan like this. We're not sure. But what is certain is Joshua knows this. 
He knows he has to offer peace if these people are truly from a distant place. And it's at this point where you begin to sort of, you know, feel the pressure and the weight of, of Joshua and, and the call over leadership and responsibility. Man, this covenant thing is hard, especially in a world where sin abounds. Who can I trust here? What can I do? He's asked all the questions at this point. He sees their bread. He sees their wineskins. That seems to back up their story. What is left to do? And it turns out there's also a provision for this scenario as well. In such a situation, when the law doesn't cover a particular detail such as this, Numbers 27, which you didn't read this morning, nor I, but what they just got done reading, instructs them to go talk to the priest, Eleazar, who will give final guidance and instruction and direction as to what they are supposed to do. This is the prescribed way to go, but this is what Joshua and the leaders do not do. On the heels of what the Gideonites are doing, the story goes out of its way to tell us that the leaders, what did not ask the Lord. Instead, they relied on their own judgment and made a decision about seeking counsel from the Lord. Instead of, yeah, made a decision without seeking counsel uh, with the Lord. Look at verse 14 again. So the men took some of their provisions and did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them and let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. This is a, this is a little bit of the head fake of this story, just to be honest with you. You're ready to jump all over the Gibeonites, right? You are brought into what's happening here. All right. And it's sad, and you don't want to see this type of deception happening. You realize that you know, what they've done, that they're in the wrong, but the Bible all of a sudden begins to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, right? The Gibeonites are not the only guilty party here. Joshua and the leaders failed to avail themselves to the wisdom of God and how he has made it available to them. And in so doing... The entire nation of Israel is now possibly on the brink of receiving judgment from God because of breaking the covenant. It is a serious matter. It is a life and death situation. We'll come back to Joshua and its leaders later as we look at why they were deceived. But by the end of verse 15, we have a mess on our hands. And that's why this this story to me anyway was just strange. It is a throwaway story. It is a, oh, by the way, this thing happened. And it's not clear at first why God is putting this in the Bible. uh, But it is a mess nonetheless by the time we get to verse 15. What is Israel to do now? What is Joshua to do now? What about the Gibeonites? Where is this going? And this gets to our second point. What God does. This is the first point. What the Gibeonites did. What they did. They straight up deceived God's people. No question. But what does God do? And this is the second point. God shows them mercy. Verses 22 to 24. Shows them mercy. As the people of Israel find out about the Gibeonite deception, they begin to run out, as the text says there, I believe in verse 16, uh, to run out to their countries and and, and to go to their places to, to, to fight them, to destroy them. But because of the covenant made with them in the name of the Lord by Joshua and the leaders, they can't be touched. Why? And this is important, but it's not, it's not my point this morning. The reason they can't be touched is because Joshua and the leaders made a covenant in the name of the Lord 
to not hurt these people. And what that means is that's essentially like God coming down and making a covenant with these people. And for that covenant to be broken would be to say that God's word, Yahweh's word, cannot be trusted in the land. Joshua is his representative. If you ask me, when I, when I find out about the deception, all bets are off. Wait a minute here. No, 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 no. Yeah, and I send my army and we're going to take care of this. But obviously the text reminds us and reminds his people that, wait a minute here, there's something more going on here. There's something more important than just deception. God's word is at play here. At play here. And so they can't, they can't do anything at this point. And again, it puts this intention here. What is Joshua going to do? He lets them live. But he makes them servants in the house of the Lord as woodcutters and water carriers. These are people who would basically be working in uh, the temple, right? burning sacrifices with the wood, cleaning the temple with the water. Right? They're going to be around all of that. This is what woodcutters and water carriers are. But then the story does another strange thing. And I'm trying to give you a little bit of the feel of the flow. Verse 22 to 27, we get this weird window into this dialogue between Joshua and the Gibeonite leaders. Joshua asked them, why did you deceive us? Like, Why did you do this thing? Now, look, if, if, if you're the leader of God's people, why would you care about what a bunch of lying, no good, deceiving, mess, messy people, you know, what were their motives for this? Why would you even care let alone to ask, and why is God putting it in the Bible? I mean, here's the group of liars, right, who seem to be, spread, who seem to be spared because of a foolish error on the part of Israel's leadership. Who cares what they think and why they did what they did? They are servants now. Let's move on. But it's moments like this in the narratives, right, where we need to pause for a second. We need to stop. We need to recognize that maybe this is the most important part of the story. And what we find is that this window, this dialogue between Joshua and the Gibeons reminds us again and again who the hero is of this story. This is where the gospel is. It's not Joshua. It's not Israel. It's not the Gibeonites. The hero of this story is God. He's the hero of all the stories in the Bible. But it reminds us that he is the story. It's not Joshua. It's not the leaders of Israel, right? It, it, it reminds us of God's mercy and care for those who what? Who will fear him. For those who will humble themselves before him. And what does God do for those who fear him, who humble themselves before him? He delivers them, the text says. He actually makes them a part of his kingdom, when the Gibeonites are asked why they deceived them, they answer in verse 24, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because, you, because of you. And we did this thing, verse 26. So he did this to them, meaning Joshua, and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. And they did not kill them. They feared the Lord, and what did God do? He showed them mercy. <clears throat> a bunch of lying, no good, deceiving people. God shows them mercy. 
If you're Israel reading this story or hearing this story years later, right, is this what you wanted God to do to these people? Make them <clears throat> servants in his temple? Or do you want judgment? Right, it's a good question for us this morning. What, what do you want for others, really, in your life? Others in your workspace, others in this city. Do you want mercy for them or do you want judgment? Do you want them to know and experience the fear of the Lord? Like the, the awe that they can be caught up in his grace and his mercy. Do you want them to experience what it means to be humbled before him? Or do, you, do you just want judgment? Do we want others to receive the same mercy that we too have been given? We have God's promise to us. Is that not everything that we need? See, the turn the turn the story is taking is is dramatic. And like most of the Old Testament books, they were written for Israel with Israel's prideful, arrogant, stubborn heart and mind. And here is in this story ending, you know, is a story ending with deliverance. And, and not judgment. And it forces the reader to ask, what does your heart really want for others? Do you want judgment for others or mercy? Do you want people to fear the Lord or humble themselves to receive his mercy? Or do you just want them to burn in hell? I'm channeling Jonah at this point. Listen, it's easy to think of the Bible as two different accounts, two different gods, right? The Old Testament gods all about Judgment, fire and brimstone. And the New Testament, God with Jesus, when he finally shows up, is about love and acceptance. But that is false. It is one story. It is about one God. And judgment is a huge part of that story. But so is mercy. So is mercy. And as God's people who have been shown mercy, his desire for us what is that we would long for his mercy to be shown to others too. That the world would humble themselves and fear him to be in all of him. Again, to be caught up in his grace and his mercy. This is what it actually means for, for Israel to be on mission, to be a blessing to the nations. That they would know his mercy. But if all God's people want for the world is judgment, the message of mercy and grace that we love so much, I get lo- it gets lost. This is why the Rahab story is webbed throughout the entire book of Joshua. And not just the book of Joshua, but the entire Bible. <laughs> Ask yourselves this morning, what do you want for others and why? Are we deceiving ourselves when it comes to who we really want to be included within these walls? And I, I am asking that question at myself. How would we even know? The Gibeonites feared the Lord. And God showed them mercy. This is what God did. Let's look lastly now what God wants. And what God wants, as we've already said, is he wants the humble. He wants the humble. He wants those who will fear him. He wants those who will submit themselves to his wisdom and will daily. In an ironic twist here, uh, from where this story began, it's the Gibeonites, not Israel's leaders, who submit themselves to the Lord's wisdom. Verse 25, and now behold, we are in your hand. 
whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So the Gibeonites are saying, like, we knew we had no chance to live. Right? We knew we were next after Jericho and Ai. We certainly didn't want to fight against you because we believe your God is who he says that he is. But we didn't know what to do. So we did this thing. But that's no excuse. We deserve judgment. We are in your hand. Do what seems right in your sight. In other words, we own up to what we've done and place ourselves, what, at your mercy. To do this requires humility. And this is what God wants. David Brooks writes this about humility. He says, humility is having an accurate assessment of your own nature. It is having an accurate assessment of your own place in the cosmos. It's an awareness that you are an underdog in the struggle against your own sins. It's an awareness that individual talents are inadequate to the tasks that have been assigned to you. It's understanding yourself in the context of the greater divine order, knowing you're not the certain center of the universe and you need redemptive assistance to complete your tasks. In other words, humility is the ability to look at God and say, I am in your hands. I'm in your hands. Do with me whatever seems good and right to do. This is what God wants. This is the stuff that he longs to see a broken and a contrite heart willing to submit to his wisdom and his love and his care daily. Now, will they do that daily? Probably not. They're human. But as far as the story is concerned, where it is guiding us, why this story is sort of tagged in here, you know, what, what it wants to show us is what God will do for those who will fear him who will humble themselves before them, he will show them mercy. What he wants is humility. And this is actually the humility that Joshua and the leaders should have exhibited in the beginning in seeking and submitting themselves to the Lord's wisdom. But by the end of the story, it's the lion deceiving no good Gibeonites, modeling the humility by submitting themselves to the will of God. See, unto them and to those who will fear and humble themselves before The Lord, God shows mercy. He makes them his own. This is the last time that we hear about the Gibeonites. God truly keeps his promises to them. This is why we can say that he makes them his own. Uh, The Gibeonites will come up again in in, in 2 Samuel 21, where David, right, is suffering with his people through three years of famine. And the reason why there is a famine in the land is that he is told that it is blood guilt from Saul, who tried to take out the Gibeonites. But that's not the last time we'll hear about them. Like when we get to Nehemiah after the exile and they're building the temple. Chapter 3 lists a lot of people who are there building the temple with Israel who have been in many ways brought into the people of God. And guess who's there building that temple? It's the Gibeonites. I almost wonder what this story would have meant really to an exiled Jew in Babylon captivity, wondering if God's promises are are real, wondering if if there's certainty to be found in his promises. Is he going to make good on these things? And then to remember his his neighbor, Mr. and Mrs. Gibeonite, who are still with them. Why? Because God keeps his promises, keeps all of his promises. And this really gets us to the good news of of the text. What's true here is God decides. He gets to decide, right? 
Who is in his kingdom? And his kingdom, friends, is full of messed up people. No good, lying, deceiving people. Liars, adulterers, thieves, the greedy. And while we would expect all these things to keep us out of his kingdom, to those who will, what, humble themselves before him, he will say, I'm sorry, forgive me. He longs to make them his own. God decides who is in his kingdom, and his kingdom is full of messed up people. May that be some good news for you this morning. The question we are left with then is, what about us? What will, or how will we humble ourselves before God and remain humble before him to fear the Lord and not go our own way as the leaders do here? To seek out his wisdom and not rest on our own as Joshua does here. How can we know the certainty of his promise to us to show us mercy in spite of what we've done? And this is where we'll end with two things, a warning and a provision. But first, the warning that the text offers. The warning that the text offers is that for us to start, excuse me, first we have to start with what keeps us from the humility that God wants. And the warning in the text is, is that what keeps us from that humility is our pride. What keeps us from that humility is our pride. What kept Joshua and Israel from being able to humble themselves was both the flattery of the Gibeonites, but their pride as well. And the two actually work hand in hand. When we look back to see how Joshua and the leaders were deceived, we see an absence of humility among them to rest on their own wisdom and not the Lord's. Instead of asking for wisdom, they were what, as Kent Hughes writes, living out of a false self-confidence instead of a daily submission of every part of their lives to the will of God. In other words, they were unable to say the words, I don't know. And this should be the warning for us this morning, the warning for the church. Flattery is such a powerful Because it stokes our pride and it blinds us to reality. The reality is Joshua and the leaders didn't know what to do and they should have asked. But the flattery of the Gibeonites to come in as their servants, right? To boast in their God was everything that Joshua and the elders wanted to hear, even in their suspicion. Because what flattery does, what? It's worm candy, right? For our hearts, it's what we want to hear. And once we get a taste of it, our pride does the rest. Yeah, you bet you want to align yourself with me. Here's what flattery sounds like to a young pastor on the college campus. Student comes to RUF and says, I have visited other ministries, but they're just so shallow. RUF gets into the Bible and talks about what's real. Oh, yes, come on. Right. Right. But it's here in the church too, right? What's it for the church? You know, other churches just don't teach the Bible. Y'all do, and y'all talk about sin. I've never been to a place that does that. Oh, yes, right. Right? There's that flattery that just stokes our pride and blinds us to what is real. Guess what, Ryan? Other ministries teach the Bible. Other ministry, other churches teach the Bible. Guess what, Ryan? You can be shallow too. But in that moment, why I love it 
I'm the hero. I'm who they've come to see. I'm the one with the answers, with the power. What a warning for us to heed. And if I could stay here for just a minute longer, we, the PCA, right, we worry and sometimes rightfully so about how the world and about how culture is shaping the church. And we look to hot topic issues like homosexuality to make our points. But I can make an argument, and I, I bet that you would agree, that the way our culture is shaping the church and harming it the most is by creating cultures within it and its leadership where it is not okay to say, I don't know. Will you pray with me about that? Let's ask the Lord where that type of humility is valued. There is such a pressure in our world today to never mess up. To always be able to solve the problem, to actually be that solution for your organization, for your family, for your friends. That we are swimming, friends, in the most fruitful of soils for cultivating the pride and the arrogance that already exists in our hearts. We call this heroitis. And you feel this every day. What happens if you walk into work tomorrow and say, guys, I don't have the answers that you're looking for. Why don't we stop for a second and pray? Let's reflect on this and discern the wisdom of the Lord. Thanks, Bob, for coming in. The, you know, the retirement, right? The, the severance check is in the mail. We'll talk to you later. I mean, that's, and I'm not saying you should do that tomorrow morning, by the way. That is not the, 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 the application at this point. What I'm, what I'm pointing to here. Is that the culture out there runs on being right. It runs on pride. It runs on execution. It runs on kill or be killed. Is that what the church should run on in here? Do we look different than the world in that way? Do we lead with humility, which sometimes looks like, I don't know. Will you pray with me? What if we were people that led with, I don't know. And yes, I'm talking to the PCA. And that's not a look. That is not a I don't know about anything. It's a posture, friends. It is, it is a check, right? That I know my pride and my arrogance wants me to be the hero every step of the way. But there is only one hero in the story that I'm a part of, of as a Christian, and it is not me. Thank the Lord. I am on the theological exam committee in our presbytery, and it is an important committee in our presbytery because it is tasked with examining any and all people who would come inside our walls and teach the Bible authoritatively, who would want to be licensed, who'd want to be ordained ministers in our presbytery. It is a big deal. But just as much as I want to hear sound theology from candidates, and as much as I want to hear that they know their English Bible, I also want to know that they are able to say the words, I don't know. Because their congregation needs that too. And in some situations, needs to see that type of humility from its leaders more than anything else. I guarantee that if I ask you where you have found the most rest in your life relationally, it's when somebody looked at you across the table and perhaps had, having struggled with the same thing that you're struggling with now, with work or with family, right? With, with kids, anything, and just looked at you and said, I don't know. Can I pray with you?
And not just and not just to pray to get answers from God, but to pray together that we might be in the midst of, of, of him, that we might draw closer to him in the midst of our confusion and our uncertainty, that we would shake this false sense of self-confidence and pride and instead hold fast to the one who has called us his beloved. If we were to heed this warning, how would that posture of humility change us? How would it change you? How might that begin to fight against the pride and the arrogance of our hearts? Allowing humility to grow. This is the warning of the text. But how can we then humble ourselves and remain humble? How can we know the certainty of his promise to us to show us mercy in spite of what we've done? And this, this gets us to the provision where I'll leave us. We must look to the cross. The only place that certainty can be found. As we will see next week, while certainty won't be found in Joshua, certainty will be found in one many years from now. In the humility, excuse me, one will come many years from now in a humility that will please the Father forever. One will come who will look to the Father and say, I am in your hands. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to me, do it. But unlike the Gibeonites in this text, God will not spare him. He won't. He will not spare this servant and let him live. This servant will die. This servant will humble himself in daily submission to God's will that will take him all the way to a cross where he will die so that liars and deceivers like you and me might be shown mercy. That we might truly be forgiven. And what begins to humble you is not then looking within. It's not looking for certainty here. It's for looking for certainty in somebody Else, It's looking in and to Jesus, to the cross where God showed mercy to you. And he shows you mercy this very second. This is where certainty is found for us this morning. And it's for all who will believe. Where are you looking for this? Where does certainty come, to, come from for you? And may I offer you Jesus. May the humility of Jesus and his cross strip us of all the pride that we have, that we would look to nowhere else than the real hero of this story. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this strange throwaway story of a people group that you decide to show mercy to because they feared you. Because they humbled themselves before you. May that give us the only hope uh, that we would ever look to. The certainty that we would ever look to. To know that you are willing to grant us that same mercy. If we would but humble ourselves before you as well. Help us to walk with you daily in that way. Help us to trust uh, in your wisdom and not our own. Give us the ability to say the words, "I I don't know. That we may drive further into dependence upon you. We pray this. All in your son's name. Amen.